I am Ken Keith, a member of the International Court of Justice, uh, and in these remarks uh, on uh, aspects of the, the judicial process as seen nationally and internationally in courts and tribunals, I'll be drawing on some of my own judging practice, including most recently in the International Court, uh, and on a wider period, a longer period of uh, thinking about these issues as an academic, a reformer, as a scholar. My judging uh, experience now goes back for 25 years. Uh, my thinking about these matters uh, extends back rather further. The judging has been about half and half part-time and more recently full-time. And the part-time judging began uh, in courts in the Pacific, in small countries in the Pacific, in Western Samoa, in the Cook Islands, in uh, Niue, and most recently in Fiji. I became a full-time judge uh, in courts, the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court in New Zealand, and occasionally sat during that full-time national judging experience as a judge in the Privy Council in London on appeal mainly from courts in the Caribbean. My international judging began with uh, arbitrations um, between two states, uh, in the one case a case involving uh, allegations of breach of a treaty uh, by France, um, a treaty between France and New Zealand relating to the Rainbow Warrior affair. Another case was about law of the sea matters um, uh, under the Law of the Sea Convention, and yet another was a free trade um, dispute, a dispute between a corporate, an American corporate, and uh, Canada under the North American Free Trade um, Agreement. So now um, I have had as well uh, two years or more of experience uh, as a judge in the International Court. So I'll be talking about um, my own reflections on that experience as a national judge, as an international judge, and a, a great range really of courts and tribunals. I think about 10 or 12 different courts and tribunals now in which I've participated as, as a member. And I'll be doing that under three headings to try to simplify things. First of all I'll talk about the question who, uh, secondly about the question how, and thirdly about the question what. That is to say I will be talking about the judges, the members of the tribunal, the people who make the decisions, and, and I should say a word there too in terms of the matter of who, about counsel, about the lawyers who argue the cases. Under, under how I will be looking at matters of procedure, the processes that are followed uh, in these various courts and tribunals, and under what I will be looking at aspects of the substance of the law that um, is applied uh, in the courts and tribunals. Now, you might think, looking across, thinking across that range of experience, that there would be a huge number of differences, and of course there are differences, and I'll mention some of them, but there are many things as well uh, which are in common. There's a great deal of common ground in the whole business of uh, of judging, at least so far as I can assess this matter from my own experience and, and from reading uh, the experience of many others, reading the reports of many other decisions uh, from many parts of the world over a, a very much longer period. 
So lots of commonalities as, uh, as well as differences. In addition to those three questions, there are at least two others that are very important. Um, the one that comes <clears throat> last in the series, you might think, is what next? The whole business of compliance, of implementation, of uh, enforcement or execution of the judgments, the decisions of courts and tribunals. I'm not going to say anything about that um, on this occasion. It's, it's obviously a big and critically important um, matter. But I would say that even there, there are commonalities, uh, judgments against governments nationally as well as internationally can give rise to real challenges in terms of getting compliance. But I would just make the one point so far as the International Court is concerned and that is that recent um, very careful studies show a very high level of compliance with the judgments of the court. Uh, that's a matter, as I say, that I'm not going to pursue any further. There's also another question which you might say is the first question and that is the question why? Why are there international courts and tribunals? Why indeed are there national courts and tribunals? That is a very large question. Uh, partly it's answered by the facts um, and especially by the great uh, growth uh, to some extent going back over a hundred years but certainly in the last 20 years uh, the great growth and the acceptance by states of the, of the proposition that in resolving their disputes by peaceful means, a very basic obligation under the Charter of the United Nations, they might well uh, go to an independent third party adjudicator, to a court, to a tribunal, uh, to resolve the dispute, to settle it so far as it's possible to settle it, to decide it. And, and we see that in the, the great growth of tribunals uh, in specialised areas, regionally and universally. So there's, there's the very important um, tribunals in the world trade area, in the law of the sea, for instance. There are many investment tribunals, sometimes under bilateral agreements, sometimes within the framework of the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes sometimes regional. And then there are the many human rights bodies. Um, some of those are regional, as in Europe and the Americas, and in Africa, and, and some of them are universal, as with the various treaty bodies under the uh, human rights conventions adopted within, within the UN. So the why question is partly being answered by the practice, by the very wide acceptance by states that uh, Sometimes it's better to have their, ma their matters resolved, to have their controversies resolved by international adjudication, by international tribunals. But let me get back to the three questions I asked, um, who uh, and how and what. Now, so far as who is concerned, there are obviously great contrasts in uh, my experience over recent years. I have um, always sat in, in multi-member courts and tribunals. I've never been a, sitting as a judge alone, for instance, at the trial level. Uh, and so I have sat in courts of three or five or seven, um, and now um, a court of 15 or sometimes 16 or 17, if in addition to the 15 permanent members of the International Court of Justice, judges are ad hoc are named by the states which 
are participating uh, in the process, which are participating in the resolution of the dispute before the court. Now, plainly, there is a different dynamic depending on the numbers. There are even differences in the dynamic uh, within a single legal system within New Zealand, uh, within the Privy Council, within the uh, Supreme Court of Fiji, um, just simply out of the fact that there are five of us rather than uh, three of us. That contrast makes a difference. And on occasions I've sat, as I said, in, in courts of seven. One of my colleagues one day said uh, when we were trying to engage in discussion with counsel, uh, the poor fellow must have felt he was almost uh, struggling with an octopus, uh, with seven of us all asking him questions all at once, and that points to a practical problem with uh, questions in, in multi-judge courts. Now, there's not just the difference of number, obviously, there's also the difference of uh, community, of legal system, of the backgrounds of, of the judges. The judges with whom I've sat in my earlier career uh, tended to come from uh, a fairly homogeneous background. We were all <coughs> New Zealand lawyers or in London British lawyers um, and, and in the Pacific it tended to be uh, New Zealand, um, Australian and New Zealand or Australian trained uh, local lawyers who were the judges. So there was a very considerable uh, commonality in background uh, even although um, a number of my colleagues in the Pacific would have been Fijian and uh, Samoan and so on, uh, people indigen of, of indigenous to the, to the area, people who had been there for many thousands of years. Um, in, in London, things were slightly different, sitting with uh, judges from Scotland and, and England. Um, and in the international arbitrations I was involved in, obviously there were people from all corners of the world, uh, from uh, from Uruguay in, in one case, uh, from Norway in another, uh, Japan and so on, a, a range of people from different backgrounds. Now on the international court, um, the m membership roughly matches or does match the makeup of the Security Council. So we have judges, uh, three judges from Africa and uh, the judges from the permanent five of the Security Council, um, two, two judges from uh, the Americas, two others from Asia, uh, two from Western Europe and others, and an Eastern European. So a very different group then in terms of uh, ethnic background, in terms of national background, and also inevitably of legal traditions and legal training, legal education. Now, that is a difference. That obviously does make for differences, but I'm not sure, and this partly goes to the how and what questions as well, I'm not sure that those differences are as large as are often imagined. At least so far I haven't found that to be so, and, and when I say so far I'm not just talking of the last two years, I'm also talking of a much longer period in terms of my experience of dealing with uh, fellow arbitrators from a range of different countries right across the globe in uh, the other arbitrations I mentioned earlier. But plainly there are differences and there are very considerable differences too I should say in the way in which uh, we get uh, to those positions. Uh, the process for um, becoming a judge of the International Court is complicated and uh, 
and fraught in various ways. Uh, it, it depends uh, partly on the uh, individual capacities of the uh, candidates for election. Uh, there is a very clear statement in, in the statute, statute of the court about the qualities that judges are to bring. There is also a very clear statement that uh, the court overall is to be representative of major legal systems, of major traditions and so on. And, and so a balance is struck uh, through the nominating process and the electoral process in the members that come there. Now in terms of their, their personal qualifications, their personal backgrounds, the statute of the court contemplates that they may be people who are qualified uh, to sit on their highest um, national courts or that they may uh, have um, really qualified as international lawyers in a, in, a, in a range of possible ways, that they are juris consults of recognised uh, authority is the kind of language that you find in the statute. Now, in practice, the uh, membership uh, has varied down the years. In the original 11, back in the Permanent Court of International Justice, there were three who were who were or had been uh, national judges. Uh, that number has varied at different times, but uh, that's uh, about as large as that figure has been. And that's not so surprising way back then because there weren't a lot of people with international law experience. And, and to the extent that, the, that people did have international law experience, they had it through their foreign ministries. They were in the legal advisors departments of, of their foreign ministries, of their foreign offices. Some of them had had relevant diplomatic experience as well. Now on the court you find people who have had some national um, judging experience, some national legal experience, uh, but with a strong international law emphasis. And, uh, and in addition you will find that a, a large number of the members of the court come from a more recent diplomatic background. They have been ambassadors, ambassadors particularly at the United Nations in, in New York or in uh, Geneva. So people then with a quite different range of experiences um, but shared knowledge of international law. And if I could just anticipate in a way the what matter and look back to um, my international sorry, my national judging experience of international law issues, I would just like to make the point that national courts increasingly, and therefore national judges who might come into inter international tribunal work, national courts increasingly look at um, matters of international law. The very first case I sat on, as I said earlier, 25 years ago, uh, was a case in Western Samoa which involved the interpretation of the Bill of Rights of Western Samoa in a dispute about uh, the suffrage, a dispute about the right to be a candidate, the right uh, to be a, an elector, the right to cast a vote in the, for, for the parliament of, uh, of that uh, country. And that uh, matter turned on the interpretation of provisions which were drawn from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the time that that constitution was prepared in the late 1950s. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights was still being drafted and so it was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that provided the basis. Uh, and, and that um, proposal came from 
the work of the Trusteeship Council because Western Samoa through that period was a trust being administered by New Zealand. Um, originally it was a mandated territory under the League of Nations and then administered again by New Zealand and then it became a trust territory under the United Nations and uh, New Zealand um, was involved in the preparation of the constitution and as I say the very first case uh, I was involved in was trying to work out what the uh, constitution meant in terms of the suffrage and that meant looking back to the international origins. It meant looking back a good deal further as well into the cultural uh, position of various people within the uh, hierarchies of, of that uh, rather ancient civilization, rather ancient anyway for New Zealanders, a civilization that went back a, a couple of thousand years as compared with the hundred or so years that uh, we thought of as our New Zealand uh, inheritance. Uh, so right from the beginning then, international law issues have been on my plate as a judge, and, and that would be true of na other national judges um, coming to the international court. But as I say, so far as the who question is concerned, the great majority of the um, judges on the court now come with a background uh, in diplomacy, in international legal advice, and in international legal work. There are a number, of, a number of my colleagues who have had very important experience as counsel before international courts and tribunals, uh, also from time to time as arbitrators. And, and some of those as well, and a number of my other colleagues, have extensive experience as academics, as professors at, at universities in their own countries and, and elsewhere. So a mixture then of, of practitioners of various kinds of, of scholars of various kinds. And that does make a quite a different mix from what I'm used to, uh, what I was used to in, in national courts where some of us, in my case for instance, did come essentially from a background, a background of teaching and, and law reform and the like, but most of the judges, and this tends to be the common law tradition or the common law practice, most of the judges um, came from practice. Although I should say that uh, that common law trend has changed, um, is changing. You find differences in those uh, common, common law countries I know best. Certainly there have been changes from way back in the United States where people do come from an academic background into the courts. It's true as well in Canada and Australia and, 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 uh, and New Zealand to some extent and the UK to a more limited extent. And so we see, I think, uh, an evolution and sometimes a rapid evolution in what it is that lawyers do, what it is that uh, young people now um, at university thinking about careers, what it is that they might look forward to in, in 40 years. Because certainly if I look back 40 or rather more years, I could not have anticipated the range of opportunities that just seems, seem to keep um, opening up. Now, just a last word on, on who. I, I said, uh, I think, that I should mention counsel. I should mention the lawyers uh, who appear, who prepare the written arguments. Uh, I'll get on to that aspect of the how question in a moment. Um, who prepare the written arguments and who appear in court uh, to argue the case for their client, whichever, whatever the client might be. Counsel 
the lawyers before courts are tremendously important. They're obviously tremendously important for their clients. They're there representing their clients' interests, but they're also, in my assessment, very important for judges, certainly for me. Uh, in some uh, legal systems, they're said to be officers of the court, and I used to think that was just a nice phrase, but it has a, a real punch to it. Um, I, I often say, um, if later on someone who was counsel says that he was anxious about questions I was asking, uh, I will often say, I need all the help that I can get, and, and you're there not just to look after your clients, you're there to help the judges um, in doing their duty towards the law and doing their duty towards uh, just and proper adjudication in, in accordance with the relevant law. So counsel then are a very important part of the, of the who, of, of the participants in the process. Now moving on to how, my second question, the whole matter of procedure. How do you go about um, uh, adjudicating? How do the parties go about participating? Well they file, they file their initial application or whatever it might be. They then file um, written documents, uh, which are, are pleadings, which are arguments on the law, supported by annexes, supported by the documentary record that they need to make their case. The, um, the documents that may go back many centuries in, in historical disputes, say disputes about land title, about uh, sovereignty over territory or sovereignty over maritime spaces, so documents then are filed as evidence in, in support of the claim and written argument is made. And often these uh, written arguments can go on for some time. They, there may be a memorial, a counter-memorial, a, um, a, a, a reply and a rejoinder. So there may be many documents and, and many supporting um, pieces of evidence. So all that material is brought together and it should be starting to highlight the real issues in the case. And, and it's only through those documents, usually anyway, that the real issues get illuminated in the first place because one of the important differences in terms of how uh, it, between uh, the International Court of Justice and the other courts that for the most part I have been in is that the International Court is a court of first and last instance. It's not a court that has the advantage um, of a decision from a court below. And it's not only the appeal court that is advantaged by having a, a document, a, a judgment from the court below. It's advantaged in, in terms of the lower court sorting out some of the facts, sorting out some of the legal arguments, giving a greater focus to the case. It's not only the court that's advantaged by all that, it's also counsel because they, the second time round or the third time round, they can focus their arguments better. They can assess what it is that they should really be continuing to argue, what it is that uh, really can be said to be their best point, uh, what is the basis on which they're going to do best for their client. Uh, and, and we don't, on the whole, have that advantage because we are, as I say, first and last instance. But to some extent that advantage may come as the parties, through the written arguments, uh, focus, refocus, uh, and calibrate in various ways uh, the arguments that uh, they want to present 
to us. And then there is the oral phase. Now, there are different views of the, uh, of the oral phase of international adjudication, or for that matter, national adjudication. In some traditions, cases are essentially dealt with on the papers. There's not a courtroom uh, drama associated or a courtroom process. Uh, not much drama in most of the courts that I've sat in, mainly uh, the, the legal argument is, is uh, well, it's exciting for the participants but not uh, necessarily exciting as theatre. So, so there is the, um, the question of just how useful the oral argument is. I think it, at its best it's extremely helpful because it's at that point that uh, counsel have to really try to work at how do they persuade the judges or a majority of the judges uh, to come down on their side of the argument. Uh, so for me it's a critical part of the process. But there is a very major difference, this is one of the big differences for me compared with my earlier experiences including experiences in uh, international tribunals, a very big difference and that there's very little interaction between the judges and the lawyers, between bench and bar, between the court and counsel. Very few questions and um, that as I say, as a big contrast to what I'm used to uh, in the courts that I sat in in, in New Zealand and London and, and in the Pacific, uh, then the, the hearing would often be like very much like a very good uh, seminar in which the judges were, of course, running the seminar. They were, there, they were going to be the ones calling the shots at the end, but they would ask questions that were really designed, as I said earlier, to help them, to help them resolve uh, the difficult issues that were in front of them. Now, in the international court, that uh, does not happen in anywhere near the same degree. There are some questions, but they tend to be asked rather formally, and, and uh, that is a big difference. And, and it's, a, it's an area where people continue to have discussions about whether that might change to some extent. I've already indicated one reason for uh, uh, the difference in practice, and that is just having so many potential potential questioners, uh, the uh, the process could become rather chaotic. Another difference, as I've also indicated, is that uh, national traditions are different. National traditions sometimes do um, emphasise oral, as I say, oral argument, as is true in much of the common law world, but others uh, are much more paper-based, and uh, there's much less in terms of toing and froing between counsel and, and the judges. And there's also the point that we're concerned with sovereign states and uh, some say that uh, sovereign states shouldn't be badgered, if that's the right word, by questions. Now, uh, questions can be asked, I think, about that proposition, but uh, that sometimes is presented as, as a reason for um, uh, the limited amount of questioning. Now, in, in one thing I haven't mentioned as well uh, is, is the business of oral evidence. Um, again, an area of difference. Uh, oral evidence is not uncommon in uh, a lot of common law litigation, uh, but at the International Court, oral evidence is pretty unusual. Uh, we had uh, some oral evidence uh, and some witnesses come along in the more recent uh, case, the genocide case between uh, Bosnia and Serbia, but not, um, it's not, certainly not a common event. It's not something that the court is very used to. So that's a difference. Well, a number of 
differences then um, under the quest under the heading or under the question how um, some differences are quite marked really in terms of the oral phase but again I would emphasize the commonalities the similarities the the parties have to make out their case they have to put in their uh, evidence usually as I say documentary they have to argue their case in writing and orally they have to try to persuade by reference to the facts and by reference to the law that their position uh, is the preferred one. Well, that's the public side of the how matter. Uh, there is then a fascinating private side, and uh, it's possible to say quite a bit about this, but there are limits, of course, uh, of confidentiality on uh, just how the process works within the, within the court. They're all the informal contacts that arise between judges uh, talking at lunch or at morning and afternoon tea and so on or in the corridor or in their offices. There are those sorts of informal contacts. Uh, but the, the court has a very elaborate uh, and very inclusive process that goes way back into the 1920s, into the early practice of the Permanent Court of International Justice, which involves every judge uh, in the elaboration of the decision of the court and it involves every judge even although the judge may be indicating from quite early on that uh, that particular judge is going to write separately or is going to dissent. What happens is, is roughly this. The, there is a list of issues established um, following a little bit of discussion among the judges immediately at the end of the oral argument. The judges are then given the opportunity to write notes now the word note is a bit misleading because some of them go on for very many, many pages, uh, up to a hundred and some of them are short, some of them are just a few pages. But the judges then write notes indicating their views on what they see as the issues presented by the case. Uh, those notes are written in English or French, the court, I should have said earlier, operates in two languages and again that's a difference from my earlier experience which was uh, severely monolingual. Um, so we operate in English and French, the notes are translated into the other language uh, and then there is a very careful debate uh, among the judges beginning with the most junior and proceeding up the table. Um, so that means that each of the 15, 16, 17 or whatever it might be uh, will express their views on, on what they see as the important issues. Uh, there will be questioning of them on their views, there will be comments um, on their views uh, and, and as I say, everybody participates in that. It's, it's a great opportunity, it's also a, a very serious responsibility. And you do see people changing their minds as, as that process runs. Uh, they will, some will have changed their mind, I certainly have at times when, when I read the other notes. Some will change in the course of, the, of that, f that lengthy deliberation. And it can be lengthy, it can go on for some days. Now at the end of that process, the President of the Court uh, sums up the um, debate and, and indicates where she thinks the uh, majorities are on the issues which th she thinks uh, should, um, have, should be resolved, um, at least as the case is seen at that point. And in the light of that, uh, a drafting committee uh, is elected the President is a member of the court so long as she's roughly in the majority camp and, and another two members usually are elected uh, by the members of the court uh, to join her. 
So we get um, a, court, a, a committee then. It prepares a draft judgment with the assistance of the legal department and the registry of the court. There is then an opportunity over a few days for judges to send in written amendments to that and, and we have a first reading text and after judges have had the opportunity to um, think about that text on their own some, uh, discussions with colleagues, uh, there is then a very careful deliberation on that text going through it paragraph by paragraph and the paragraphs uh, which are significant parts of the argument of the, of, of the court of the draft view of the court are actually read out in, in French and in English and, and then each of the any judge who wants to can comment on on the paragraph in question again in one of those two languages and we have simultaneous interpretation through that process. And so that text um, is, is uh, subjected to comment and criticism and defence and so on and, and the drafting committee at the end of that process which again can take quite some time then goes away and prepares a second reading text uh, which then goes through the same process uh, a little later and the court gets to the uh, exciting stage of voting on the last page of that judgment and, and on the dispositif, on the, on the actual judgment in the case, on the decision in the case. And everybody has to say yes or no to each of the propositions which have been carefully worked out through the drafting process. Uh, everybody, as I say, has to say yes or no, and those votes are made publicly available along with the judgment, as part of the judgment, and along with the separate and dissenting judgments, opinions, which have been prepared through that process as well. Now, this is a process which is remarkably inclusive there's some very good writing about it, and one of the most interesting pieces of writing about it, I think, is by a, um, a former president of the court quite some years ago, in which he says the process of the elaboration of the judgment uh, reflects, as he says it definitely should, the process um, or the makeup of the court, the process of election, if you like, or the certainly the makeup of the court. The court is to represent legal systems, it is to represent major cultures and so on. And and so the judgment should too, and it should be prepared in a way which uh, he says uh, in this uh, very good article is ecumenical. When I read that I thought this is a slightly odd word, it sounds, sounds uh, a little exclusive rather than inclusive, but if you go back to the dictionary you will find that ecumenical only recently got, or relatively recently got a um, a church tinge to it, it used to mean, and it does mean, the whole world is involved. Uh, this is a worldwide endeavour, and the endeavour is definitely worldwide. And I, and I should say that um, the process <coughs> is much more inclusive than the processes I've engaged in as a judge with colleagues in, in other places. Now in saying that, I'm not critical of the other places, uh, because um, in a small court, in, in the courts I sat in in Wellington, where we're all, we're, we've all known one another a long time, we're all uh, friends of one kind or another, uh, we can easily chat at all kinds of times. We don't need that kind of structured formality to bring our opinions together. Uh, and and there, there is anyway a tendency sometimes to, for people to write separately. But in the case of the International Court, you do get then this uh, 
joint product, uh, this uh, product that comes out at the end of this process, a joint product which comes from this very inclusive process. So that's uh, one, one important part of the how question. Coming on now to the what, the, the substance of the decision. Here, uh, friends and colleagues tend to say to me, uh, friends and colleagues from other traditions, surely there's a very big difference. You're dealing with international law, a very different body of law from national law. Well, of course it is in various ways. Uh, but as I've indicated, international law issues arose in the very first uh, case in which I sat as a national judge. So there's not necessarily such a clear divide um, between uh, national and international law, and increasingly national courts deal with international law issues. But thinking of, of the work I do now and, and the work I've done in national courts, again, there are a whole lot of similarities. Difference is true, and I'll mention some as I go along. But the similarities, or the commonalities, are that we have to try to work out what the facts are. Now, sometimes that will be straightforward, um, sometimes not. Sometimes uh, there will be some quite difficult questions of, of proof, of evidence, of standards of, um, of, of proof and so on, of burdens of proof and, and the like. So quite difficult questions then sometimes in terms of finding the facts and um, evaluating the facts. Trying to find the facts, for instance, about uh, uh, going back to the Bosnia-Serbia case about whether, whether genocide occurred at, at any time in the period involved in that case. And, and if it did, um, who was responsible for the act of genocide? Uh, that involves not just looking at the, at the, at the facts in terms of the dead and, and the attacks and all that kind of thing, but evaluating them as well in terms of the intention that had to be shown. So finding facts, and that's a large task, a large part of the task of a national court judge as well. And then finding the law. Um, what is the law bearing on this particular matter? And, and if I could just um, divert a, for a moment or two on, on finding the law, one of the things that has struck me down the years of, of judging, but before that as, as a law reformer and as a, an academic, is just how much of the time courts spend uh, trying to work out what a particular text means. What does this contract mean? What does this statute mean, this piece of legislation? What does this constitution mean? Uh, what does this treaty mean? And there is a tendency to think of interpretation of statutes as being different from the interpretation of contracts and the interpretation of constitutions and so on. But I think one striking thing, when you look across the board and when you read um, the writings of really great judges who have focused on the fact that they're doing this reading business a lot of the time, they're trying to work out what do these words mean, uh, there is the striking fact that the, there are a whole lot of similarities. There is a commonality. You look at the words, you look at the context, you look at the purpose. Uh, you try to work out by looking at those matters just what the text means. Now, there's obviously a big difference between different types of legal texts. I don't deny that. A very big difference between a treaty, a constitution that is written to last for ages, 
a basic difference, say, between uh, the Charter of the United Nations and, and a bilateral visa abolition agreement or something of that kind. The one is, is written to save succeeding uh, generations from the scourge of war and so on, and obviously is written with a long-term future in mind, whereas other treaties may be uh, prepared on a, a much shorter-term basis. There's a, there's a great uh, statement by um, an American constitutional lawyer which was, which was quoted in, in a very early judgment of the Canadian Supreme Court on its Charter of Rights, its Human Rights, its Bill of Rights instrument. Uh, and, and what that great American said was, um, you must not interpret a constitution as a last will and testament, lest it become one. You must not interpret a constitution as a last will and testament, lest it become one. Uh, and, and so obviously, uh, um, constitutions and treaties which are intended, which are written for the long-term future, will be considered in a different way. But it is still the case that in interpreting texts, uh, judges, the lawyers arguing the case, will look at the words, they will look at the context, and the context may be a rather complex matter, and they will look at the purpose. And, and you find these matters um, laid down in, in Article 31 of the uh, uh, Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, for instance, and you also find the same words and the same concepts in judgments of national courts and international tribunals, and for that matter, in a number of uh, statutes, a number of acts of legislatures, uh, indicating to courts how they should go about the business of interpretation. The Australian um, Interpretation Acts, for instance, use quite a lot of the Vienna language, quite a lot of the Vienna wording. The head of the Australian delegation to the Vienna Conference was uh, a very senior government lawyer in Australia, and he was responsible for carrying the treaty words into the statute book of uh, Australia and of Australian um, states, uh, not, of course, to interpret treaties, but to interpret domestic statutes. So there is a great commonality, and, and you get cases in which, in national courts, you have to work out what, what a gap means. What, what if, a, if, if um, something is unclear? its coverage is unclear, uh, that hasn't been addressed by the drafter. There is a hole in the statute, if you like. What does the court do with it? And exactly the same issues arise for international courts. The Genocide Convention, for instance, uh, talks about um, individuals being criminally liable. Does it make it unlawful for the state to commit genocide? It doesn't say that expressly, but the court uh, in the genocide case said it did say that when the uh, convention was read in context by reference to its purpose, and also in that case by reference to the drafting history. Although the drafting history, um, you can have different views of, it's not always, uh, not always in my experience, uh, all that helpful. So we get then uh, these matters of uh, of commonality, but sure, of difference. Um, national courts don't very often um, look at issues of which state has sovereignty over territory, for instance. Uh, they don't have brought before them matters of the allocation of maritime resources, although they might if they're a federal state. There might be a dispute between the 
federal authorities and, and state or provincial authorities about that sort of matter. Uh, national courts don't have matters of, of, of aggression, of, of the unlawful use of force brought before them and so on. So certainly there are differences in subject matter. There are differences in the parties that appear. Uh, it's states, usually, states versus states that appear in our court, um, but in national courts uh, that doesn't happen. You don't get two states disputing inside a national court, although you may have a state against an individual where, as I've said, international law issues can arise. So then there are differences, certainly very important differences in the subject matter and in the parties. But again, a lot of commonalities, a lot of commonalities in fact-finding, in uh, law-finding, and then applying the law to the facts, and, of course, thinking of the remedies. Now, just, just a word about one aspect of, of remedies, of, of process. One issue which continues to recur in courts, national and international, is the matter of provisional measures, or interim relief. Parties um, before a court um, may be concerned that by the time the matter, the, the case gets to final hearing and final judgment, the other side will have done some irreparable damage. The other side will have disappeared with the funds in the case of national court proceedings, for instance. The other side will have made massive amounts of money out of breaching copyright, if that's what the decision turns out to be. Uh, the, the, other, the other side may continue to pollute um, a possible argument uh, in international litigation and as well as national litigation. So d what is the story then? Do courts have a power to grant interim relief, to grant provisional measures? Well, in the case of the international court, that is made explicit. It's in the, it's in the statute of the court. It has been from the old days of the permanent court. Um, but Issues nevertheless arise about whether this power is inherent, um, whether it is uh, uh, just an essential part of a court, that a court is set up to uh, resolve disputes uh, through a proper process, through following the how points I've been touching on, through following natural justice, uh, and, and should it, in the court's interest, be possible for one party to destroy the process effectively, quite apart from the interests of the other party. Um, and, and courts have tended to say in a number of jurisdictions that this is an inherent power, this is an inherent jurisdiction of a court, something that is essentially part of the court process. And that issue can arise um, in the international court, notwithstanding the express provision, because of the uh, scope of the power that might be disputed. Just how far does that power go? Is it possible, for example, to think of a recent instance, is it possible for the respondent in a proceeding um, to seek interim relief? Certainly something that is very unusual nationally, so far as I've been able to assess by asking friends who are experienced litigators in national courts, but is that is that possible? Well, as I say, that issue arose and the court didn't have to resolve it a, a little while ago, it arose in the dispute between Argentina and Uruguay. But there you see an issue that um, is common to national courts and international courts and you find some really good comparative lawyers, some people who know the international world, who know national court processes, who know the ways in which courts work, 
who have a real sense of what courts are basically about, uh, who can speak in, in a most interesting way and argue in a most interesting way across the board. And so I suppose that um, my last comment really about uh, this really challenging issue of uh, looking at the judicial process and trying to look at it under those headings and trying to look at it in, in the kind of time that uh, makes sense at the moment. My last comment is really to stress those commonalities, to say, yes, there are very important differences uh, between these different courts and tribunals, but the judicial process has a very um, solid and principled core, and it is about doing justice by giving the parties the full opportunity to present their arguments, to present the facts, to present the evidence, to present their legal arguments um, by reference to those facts, to properly structure those arguments, to inform the court, to inform the individuals who make it up uh, through those careful processes of just what it is uh, that they want to achieve. And, and the court then, whichever court it is, whichever tribunal it is, does try to do justice um, according to the law uh, according to the law uh, governing the case uh, and, and to reach a decision uh, which it considers uh, is a principled uh, decision. And, and so I think we do find, even if I'm repeating myself a little, a common theme, a common thread through uh, the practice and, and the principles of adjudication, of judging, um, of making decisions according to law whatever the court um, might be. Now, that's a large claim. It's based um, on, on uh, my experience, but it's also based on reading a great deal of the wisdom of uh, a lot of others, uh, a lot of others who have studied these matters and, and based as well on reading a lot of judgments of a lot of courts and tribunals and, and of talking to um, colleagues in various places and various jurisdictions uh, who engage in this really challenging, uh, really responsible, um, and at times really very exciting business of, of uh, judging. So thank you very much for your attention.